Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director, and today's podcast is with Dr. Kate Filippo, a professor in the School of Social Work and Education at Loyola University, Chicago. We will be discussing her work on school choice and the voice of students. So uh, welcome, Kate. Thanks uh, for joining me today. Thanks for inviting me, Stacy. So first off, can you give us an overview of the research you conduct on selective public schools? Sure. I mean, broadly stated, I'm really interested in both the student experience of selective um, public schools, but also their sort of broader social purpose and how people beyond students interact Um, with schools. I got interested in this as a parent of a kindergartner. I was um, newly back in Chicago, um, starting my first um, job as a professor with a five-year-old in tow. And I found a lot of people who I had never met before at parks and, um, you know, little league games and things like that, wanted to talk about the competitive school choice process um, here. And that just really surprised me since we all had kids who like didn't really, you know, necessarily know how to tie their shoes. So um, that got me really interested. I'd been looking at other issues around student experience in schools. I'd been a school social worker prior to academia, but that just really caught my interest as both a very important student experience interest that no one was paying attention to. It was really so much about parents, but also a really important civic issue. It just really seemed like students were left out of the conversation. A lot of the research on school choice was about parents, which is weird. It's like, okay, like if you're competing to get into a school, the child is competing, not parents. And I did all these crazy things that lots, you know, thousands of parents have done taking my, you know, my little, little baby um, in to be tested by strangers to see if he would qualify for different um, academically advanced programs in Chicago public schools. And I told him, you know, this is, this, it's like, how do you explain this to a five-year-old? This is like the Jedi test in Star Wars where they wanted to see who could be a Jedi when they were little. And he came out and he said, Mom, that was not like a Jedi test. (laughs) And that was like a very instructive moment for me. Like, okay, like we all need these things from these schools that my needs are not about a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, A politician's need is not about a kid. Um, A neighborhood's need is not about a kid. A school district's need to to offer some sort of experience or say they're offering some sort of experience. That's not about kids' needs. That's about the school district's needs. That really sort of got me interested. And then the other issue is just how, you know, selective schools are not just about who is academically advanced. I mean, of course, even who is academically advanced is a really socially and culturally loaded topic gets into, you know, who deserves to be in what are often sort of casually referred to as good schools. But also everybody's got a stake in this. So just, I mean, looking around right now in particular, it's just wild. Three school board members were recalled in San Francisco after what's been widely viewed as a pretty hasty decision to remove 
the um, entrance exam requirements for Lowell High School, which is a very longstanding selective public high school in San Francisco Unified. The Thomas Jefferson um, High School in Fairfax, Virginia, the back and forth between a parent group who wants to undo the holistic admissions process that the school district had put in place in place of entrance exams. It's gone back and forth through the court system and was recently denied um, hearing by Supreme Court um, and sent back to the District Court of Appeals. So that's going on. I've sat in on a, or I was contributed to a Friends of the Court briefing on that. Um, The incidents that have happened in Boston over the change in their selective schools policy with some of the, you know, with the oldest um, selective school in the country, it's over 250 years old, turned into a real Game of Thrones um, situation with a sort of backroom attempt at a political deal that would still set aside some spots for kids who had great grades and test scores, even though the policy the district ultimately settled on was grades, test scores, and also um, distributed the seats evenly across different like geographic areas with socioeconomic indicators. So, I mean, this turned into like big drama. There were threats made, you know, against people's safety, harassment of people um, in terms of trying to get them fired from their jobs. I mean, this, this is not like the boring policy I usually study. Um, <laughs> An attempt to change the exemptions exam policy for some of the exam schools or selective schools in New York City um, stalled out in the state legislature because there weren't enough people willing to stand behind this really controversial effort. So, like, these things show how um, politically relevant selective public schools are, what an intensely public issue they are, touching on matters of things like college access, race and opportunity, who controls local schools, um, what are school districts responsible to to provide, and who's responsible for young people getting a high quality education? Is it the state? Is it the district? Is it the school? Is it parents? Is it students themselves? So with your research, because you're researching this, like what is your conceptual framework that you're using? The conceptual framework for a book, which came out in 2019, Contest Without Winners, I wanted to really look at students in different ways. So I looked at them as like policy actors using some of the work that Stephen Ball has done on like policy enactment. Um, he really studied teachers picking up policy and making sense with it and sort of grappling with it and then carrying it out. So I took that perspective only with students. How do students hear about this policy and then what do they do with it? But also students as early adolescents looking at developmental theory with all of its warts and shortcomings, sort of like thinking about like, how does a typical U.S pre-adolescent navigate the world, but also students as socially and cognitively situated. Thinking about like a student is like their brain is situated in their body, which has, you know, gives them messages about safety, danger, um, gratification, happiness, excitement, things like that, situated inside of schools, inside of neighborhoods, inside of families, that young people are making these decisions not based on what a page in a guidebook says, but on how they feel about a neighborhood, maybe a neighborhood they've never been to. I had a young woman in my study who had gone to visit an art school, which at the time was in a neighborhood that had a very negative um, racialized reputation for safety. She didn't even make it through the whole visit. She and her mom were so uncomfortable even being at the school and seeing the guards that were there that they left before the visit was over and she never even applied to that school. Thinking about what it is to take a train for a half an hour or an hour or an hour and a half as many kids in Chicago do 
from one neighborhood to another. Like that's part of the whole process of, of picking a school and deciding where you belong. Hmm. The current study I'm doing is looking at the variety of policy actors that are that were involved in um, a selective schools policy change in a city I'm not naming just due to human subjects agreements because it's such a controversial change where students are definitely part of the process both you know student representatives on the board student activists students who are involved in the body that actually made the policy recommendations but also community activists, organizational leaders, employees of the school district, both in leadership roles, but in also educator and school leader roles, sort of how did all those people come together? And where did this policy come from in this controversial time? So for that, I'm looking at both, you know, different theories concerning kind of public discourse and debate and argument over what policy ought to be. So Leslie Vitovich's work and Carol Bocci's work, sort of thinking about like, who is trying to steer this conversation and by what means. Um, And also strategic action fields. I'm like looking at the book right now, um, Flagstein and McAdams sort of looking at these different areas. So like public education in a particular space, a city um, is one example of a strategic action field. How different actors involved in a policy process in that field are generally going to have a, a shared understanding of what the rules of engagement are, what's sort of the span of what they're dealing with, how power is distributed, and how things come along to disrupt those very stable arrangements like the pandemic, like the murder of George Floyd. So this theory kind of helps us look at the social mechanisms and interactions that are involved in pushes for change or kind of pushes back to try to maintain stability. This podcast is sponsored by QSR International, developers of Invivo and other software solutions for leading researchers and educators. If you're looking for a better way to manage literature, writing, and reference management, try using Citavi. It's the only all-in-one writing and reference management software. You can start to organize and write your paper as you review the literature, export your outline to Word to start writing, and collaborate with others. Satavi is available on desktop or via web, and you can give it a test run free for 30 days at satavi.com. So how do you collect your data? My priority is to hear from people who are directly involved in whatever I'm interested in and who are directly affected. So that really shapes not just like who I try to get to talk to me, but like what questions I ask, what spaces I'm trying to um, put myself in as a learner. The other thing you want to talk about was like research methods. So it's kind of all together. So, you know, I'm mostly a qualitative research scholar. I do, I am involved in other mixed methods work, developing and carrying out surveys to hear from a wide range of people. But typically I want to interview people. I want to observe the spaces where policies are being carried out, are being debated, are being made sense of. So, you know, a perfect day for me is, for example, with uh, the research for my book was like sitting in the library of Vista, one of the schools in my study, while all the eighth grade kids were getting sort of a, a one hour download of what they had to know and do in order to um, apply to school. So it was interesting what 
people said sort of on script and off script, but also how kids responded, what their faces looked like, the kinds of questions they asked, what the conversation was on the way to the library, what the conversation was on the way back to class, what teachers said after that was done, sort of like putting their two cents in. The other thing I'll say is like the world of of, um, potential documents is a really rich world. Not only media coverage, which now we can access just almost everything, especially through a university library, any newspaper, um, but also Twitter, online petitions. And, you know, one of the ways that we don't talk about a lot that the pandemic really shook up the education policy world was pushing so many things onto Zoom. Mm -hmm. So um, in the study that I'm currently doing, I was able to create verbatim transcripts of all of the board deliberation, uh, the board subcommittee deliberation about potential policy change, every public comment, I've turned all that into documents. So there's just, there's so much to look at that can become material with which to conduct research. So that's a really exciting thing that the world I feel like has just delivered to me more and more with each year I've been in academia. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that will keep up now that, you know, people are back in person, but I think some places are still doing the Zoom too, to make it more accessible. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, like Chicago Public Schools has always had, I don't know if it's actually Facebook Live, but there's there's always been an option to watch the meeting live, but then the recordings live on. So I've used those as an instructor for years saying, you know, I'd sure love for you to go to this board meeting at 10 o'clock in the morning and write a paper on it. But like, oh, wait, you have a job. (laughs) Um, You have another class then. That's great. You can watch the recording. Um, So some of that has already been out there. But now, I mean, I'm thinking of many of the deliberations over policy that have happened in the last couple of years people have been able to do public comment from their living room. There's a a woman in um, one of the policy um, change processes that I'm studying who was able to do public comment from the parking lot behind her workplace. Wow. Um, That really changes who can be involved. It also changes the level of public scrutiny, which changes how policy actors actually conduct themselves Mm -hmm. because they know like this is going to live forever. You know, you you have to think about that and you should be ready for people to ask you a lot of questions as opposed to who shows up at 10 o'clock in the morning when teachers can't come, when most young people are not going to be able to make it. Most parents are not going to be able to make it. Yeah, no, that's great. So how do you analyze your data and do you, you know, do you use any um, specific technology for it? I definitely do. Um, I take a lot of notes while I'm in the field, sort of things that are occurring to me that I don't want to forget. So I often like walking my dog, I'll be dictating um, observations or questions into my phone. So that's the beginning of my technology use. But I also just take sort of very traditional um, field notes. You know, one of the things I learned even doing my dissertation research in a school was like, get in your car and sit there and write stuff down until you don't have anything else to say because you're not going to remember it in two hours. Mm -hmm. So I've always done that, but technology really helps. And I I do that also, even when I'm analyzing data later, it's like, you know, ideas come to me when I'm not in front of my computer, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Also just like read everything you can read transcripts without, and this is really hard, right? Read a transcript without doing anything to it, just read it, just think about it. Or if you really need to pick, take notes, like have it just like a piece of paper next to you, like don't turn this into, you know, I'm reading it for the first time, so I have to apply codes or say what this means. Just take your notes, don't 
Don't get like, don't be doing 10 things at once. Do Mm -hmm. one and a half things at once. (laughs) Read primarily and maybe write down a couple things. So one of the things I really like to do is just like if I'm on a research team is everybody maybe read two or three transcripts and then come together to talk about them. People will see the same material from really different points of view and have different observations that are often super valuable. You know, one mind can only do so much. Um, As far as qualitative coding, I'm sort of from the like 1.5 generation. My instructors and advisors did qualitative coding on paper with like scissors and note cards and highlighters and things like that. So I learned from them, but then I also was in the sort of early, like hyper-research nudist, you know, stage of qualitative coding software. So I've all, I've just sort of changed as I've had access to different software. I love using qualitative coding software to name codes, come up with a great definition that everybody can access, that we can change, that we can give examples of, both to do kind of emergent coding, sort of here are themes that are coming up that we weren't necessarily looking for, although sometimes those can come from those conversations about transcripts or those dog walk dictations. But also, and it's funny, I mean, I've had people in my career always sort of question this, but it's really important. We know what we're looking for. We, our, our frameworks tell us things, you know, right? An early adolescent developmental framework or a situated social cognition framework tells me things that I'm going to be looking for. If I'm studying selective schools in a city, I'm absolutely going to be looking for race. That's like not a surprise. That's just reality. So I try to balance acknowledging what I know I'm seeking. And sometimes it's not there and that's fine. But also what comes up in a more kind of like grounded theory type way. My experience has always been that it's both. Mm -hmm. Um, And I try to create codes for both. And I'm really big into like categorizing my codes, putting like, and that's a really nice thing about Envivo or other um, programs is being able to sort of like have code clusters, you know, like in my current study, I have a code cluster about sort of efforts efforts to influence policy, a code cluster for issues of race and racism, which includes any use of race language, any reference to the Black Lives Matter movement, any examples of racism, which was a very hard code to come up with definitions Mm -hmm. um, for on my team, any explicit mentions of racism. And and, um, we found a lot of people self-identifying as immigrants. So we had a code that was just for any time people referred to themselves or referred to immigrants. Um, So that's what's amazing about software in all honest truth sort of where where you go from there sometimes i struggle i really love to use the tools for sort of inter-rater comparison yeah 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 i mean i'm not i've done studies with cohen's kappa before i feel like there's a time and place for that but many of my studies like that precise match especially when qualitative coding software it comes down to like characters um right. sometimes not matching there does not mean that you're not agreeing mm-hmm. um on how this code ought to be applied so i tend to use the term interrater agreement mm-hmm. um to make clear that i'm not going for this like very strict sort of quant um mimicking kind of approach to reliability um but I really like that. I mean, you know, having no overlap is a sign that something's not working. And mm-hmm. I always use that as we get going on multiple coder work. I really love really simple things like word queries. I love being able to take notes in the coded data. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the kind of ways that I've tended to use software. I have fantasy 
empathies about there being some way that I can see things in a different way mm-hmm. um, using software. But honestly, like I try every time I do a study and like nothing ever comes up that works better to me than coding and then taking that, them- that kind of thematically coded material and creating my own tables. Mm-hmm. I tend to do that a lot. We'll take a quick break from the episode. To learn more about Kate's research, please visit her profile under the School of Social Work at the Loyola University Chicago website. And so, so you mentioned how you work as a team. Can you elaborate like who's on your team and, and how you work? Sure. I mean, it's interesting, right? Like academia is this really intensely um, hierarchical place. And so what that typically means is there's a professor in charge or maybe a couple professors in charge and then some other professors who are more peripherally involved or maybe junior are also involved. And then there are graduate students who may or may not be paid. And like there's sort of a, a downward flow of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely been parts of those studies. That's definitely the way that research worked for my book. But even in that process, the students I worked with were way too cool and way too smart to tolerate such nonsense. Um <laughs> Partly, and I'm thinking about like when we read transcripts, you know, one of the really, I mean, really even the title of the book really came from a meeting with three doctoral students, all of whom had attended schools where they were in some sort of selective programming, whether it was a selective school or a selective track. Two of them were parents of school-age kids. And one of them came in and was so angry at what Cal, one of the participants had said that we ended up spending the whole time talking about like, why would someone say things like, for a white kid like me, it's really much harder to get into a good school because they really set it up so that black and Hispanic kids have more chances and get more points. Like all of which is like completely like not the way the policy worked, but hearing a generationally, ethno-racially diverse group of people working through what that means and why a 14-year-old would say that to me was really essential to the findings that we ended up coming up with. So that was sort of the beginning of my transition into really resisting hierarchy mm-hmm. on research. I mean, I wear the professor badge. That means stuff. Like I get paid. This is my job. So I have people assigned to me because I'm a professor, like where it's their job to work for me because they've got some kind of a fellowship. So like that's real. And people generally want something from me, whether it's a recommendation or just more help, or they want me to like them, you know, like (laughs) that power is real. And I don't want to pretend that that doesn't exist, but by the same token, everybody on a research team matters, you know, more than one head is always better than one head. An academic hierarchy is good for getting people to be kind of afraid and to like do their part to like pump out articles, but it's not good for intellectual work. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't tend to get the best out of people. I mean, what I find, and it's it's not how I was trained, and the anxiety that junior faculty feel leads them to rely on hierarchy to get stuff done. And that's that's not a very pretty picture. But what I've really come to see in particularly is like I've gotten more secure and like I have job security and all that awesome stuff that academia still offers to a lot of people is get out of the way, shut mm-hmm. your mouth, like let people talk, um, let people take on leadership roles. Um do what you can to help bring out the best in people and what's what they know that I don't know. So, I mean, a really obvious place for that is around issues of race. I'm extremely white. I went to white schools. I've always gone to predominantly white since elementary school was not that way, but from middle school through my PhD, 
see, I was in predominantly white institutions. There's stuff I don't see. There's stuff I don't know. There's stuff that I don't even know I feel uncomfortable saying. It's not right to outsource that to people of color. Um, there needs to be compensation. There needs to be parity. And there needs to be authority parity also. Other people will see things that I don't see by virtue of who they are, what age they are, what their identities are, and that makes things better. So I have to listen, I have to step aside, I have to resist the temptation to dominate the research process. It just doesn't make for good work. So like my project right now, it's not just me and a bunch of doctoral students, it's me and doctoral students and master's students. And last summer we had a high school student volunteer who was amazing. And all those folks bring different perspectives um, to what we're doing. They also bring different questions. The, the trick there is to make people feel comfortable enough that they'll say, I don't know. And this just happened with a proposal we sent out. Like I said, oh, look at look at how these race-neutral structures in this policy change were, were used for the forces of good. People were able to manage those and sort of operationalize those in some ways that really push for change. And one of my students who's a um, community activist who is, um, you know, less than half my age said, yeah, that happened. But also, don't you think the fact that who we're thinking of as the proponents of this change, they use those structures, but so did the people who were trying to contain it. Mm-hmm. So is that good? And, you know, professors generally don't like being challenged, but they should. And Mm -hmm. to me, that was like one of the best moments of this team was that somebody who's just charting their own course in academia felt um, comfortable enough to tell me like, you only have half the picture here. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make for a better study. So that's, Mm -hmm. to me, that's what research teams need to be like, right, we need to do iterator agreement, we need to divide work up, there's no way I could have generated transcripts for over 60 hours of public deliberation about a policy change, just like sitting at my desk, like that's just not possible. Um, So there is a sort of workload part of it, but it's also like an intellectual load and teams generally make things better, even though yes, coordination costs, when can we all meet? Like everybody hates doodle polls, like all that stuff is true. It just makes research better. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like it's good leadership when I'm hearing <laughs> from you. I, I really, it's, it's funny, like, you know, whatever that saying is of like, you know, people who want to be leaders shouldn't be leaders. Like this has been the most, research teams have been the most essential leadership experience of my career, not being on a leadership team and, you know, on a university faculty or in the schools I used to work in, but really figuring out how to keep something moving forward without shutting people down or making people feel like intimidated or controlled. And like you said, you get more out of everyone by doing that. Yeah. yeah. And then they don't hate me, which is also really important (laughs) just to my ability to like enjoy life Uh and feel like a not horrible person, but also it just, it makes for better academic experience. I mean, like we've got people from our team now getting into awesome PhD programs or saying, you know what? I never want to be a researcher. I'm so glad I'm on this team. That's just not what I want to do. I'm mean, a master's student, a brilliant um, young person, really lead a lot of our coding work, which was not anything that they envisioned themselves doing. And that was a real sort of like, hey, maybe academia is for yeah. me. Yeah, that's great. And so what are the implications of your findings around the selective public school policies for students, parents, and communities? I know it might be a lot, but. 
Um, I mean, the first thing, because it's funny, a lot of people will say, like, why are we spending all this time talking about these schools that serve, you know, two, five percent of our population? Like, why aren't we focusing on everybody else? That's an awesome question. And I think that question needs to keep being asked. I would also say these schools are really a lightning rod. Mm -hmm. They are where the rubber meets the road when we talk about things like um, racialized opportunities, who decides how schools are going to work. What kind of voice does the public have? Who ought to be making these decisions for districts? This is where it all comes down because people are really invested in these schools, whether, whether they go to them or not, whether their kids go to them or not. Everybody wants these schools to exist. I wouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people are just really invested mm-hmm. in this process and are willing to fight about it. So like my first implication is like these schools really matter and really tell us a lot about ourselves as a society right now. The other implications to me are, you know, first of all, most importantly, I really want young people to not see what happens through the application process, the admissions process, as an indicator of who they are, who they're not, or who other people are or are not. You know, the people, like entire, you know, 4,000 people that go to this school, you can't decide things about their character based on where they go to high school. And you shouldn't be doing that about yourself either. That there's a lot of room to grow, to change. Like that's what school's for. So, and I mean, and these schools can bring out great experiences for a lot of people. The stories I've heard are amazing. I mean, I've also heard really ugly stories of people who had never really experienced racism before they'd gone. You know, they'd been in a really comfortable neighborhood school where like everybody knew each other, everybody was from the same neighborhood. And then they go to these schools and people are telling them, you just got in here because you're black. Like, that's a powerful social experience mm-hmm. um, that's not going to be forgotten. So like what happens in these schools can really matter for better or for worse. And that can be a very powerful experience. But just because you don't get that doesn't mean you don't belong in college. Doesn't mean you're not smart. Doesn't mean other people are better than you. So like that kind of first and foremost. And then beyond that, I think we need to think about like, why do we put young people in the position of creating opportunities for themselves when they're 11. Is that our fascination with competition, which we love, right? Like reality shows and, you know, things like that. Like, you know, we enjoy that. We enjoy elections, although, you know, they're starting to become more stressful than they are interesting. But like, why do we want that to be the way? Why do we think of that as fair? And what does that mean for how we parent, how we teach? And then just more on a kind of concrete level, the process of competitive school choice is, is pretty brutal. And if we want kids to be able to navigate it, we need to not assume that they all have the same level of parental support. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make materials really accessible, not just English and Spanish, mm-hmm. um, but think about the reading level that those materials are at. Think about the languages that are spoken and read at home. Think about whether people are literate in those languages or whether there need to be other ways of conveying that information through video clips, virtual visits to schools. Um, I mean, I think the pandemic really brought some of that along in terms of making things more accessible. But like, if, if, we, if we're going to do this to kids and we, we want to say that we're making it accessible, there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. But the other yeah. picture is like, do we need to do this to kids? Um, (laughs) Is is having those schools so important that the amount of litigation, personal stress, family conflict, sort of hijacking of what happens in the grades running up to those applications, like, is that worth it? And, you know, I'm good at answering questions that we can't 
necessarily answer, but like, that's what really came out of this for me is like, you know, we can tweak this so that people can compete maybe a little bit more fairly, but if we're still asking them to compete, it hasn't really changed that much. And I think now, I mean, particularly with all these lawsuits and school board recalls and like death threats and all this stuff that's been happening in this round of policy deliberation, I think the implication is just this stuff really matters to us. And um, we need to take that really seriously. We need to understand these competitions for school show how important educational attainment is right now. And it really reflects what you know statistics are telling us about how well you do in school, how long you go in school, the level of eliteness of your school. All those things really do have something to do with how much money you earn mm-hmm. um, with your long-term health outcomes. Um, so that's there and it's, it's up to us to sort of evaluate that and think about, you know, how we want to prepare our kids for that. What we want to tell them is really important and what matters. Like in our family, we've, we've talked since our son was little of like, most tests really don't matter. Here are a couple tests that really have a lot to do with what's going to happen in your future. And like, let's Mm -hmm. think about that. Let's think about who that affects. And then if this matters to you, this is something to organize around. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, easy for me, one kid, like, you know, Wi-Fi, I speak the same language all the materials are published in. Mm-hmm. Um, easy for me to do that. Mm-hmm. Let's think about who gets to do that and who doesn't and what we can, what we need to do about that in terms of schools truly serving society. Yeah. Yeah. Like you mentioned, it sounds to me it's all about uh, accessibility, a lot of it mm-hmm. <laughs> from what mm-hmm. you just described mm-hmm. there. It's interesting, right? Like there are a lot of efforts out there to just make it easier for more kids to compete for those spots. Which is like, well, that that intensifies the competition and then people who are used to getting what they want can just, you know, fight bigger, fight dirtier, spend more money, you know, whatever it is. Like that doesn't take the competition away. It just sort of changes the stakes. Yeah. Yeah. What's one piece of advice you would give a researcher conducting research on like policy changes or policy in general? Mm -hmm. I'd say, you know, really learn a lot about it before you start asking people stuff that it's really easy to, I mean, it's very tempting, right? We do, I do research because I love um, hearing from people, how they make sense of the things going on around them in schools. If I show up and I'm uneducated about what the policy is, what the deliberations have been, what's happened in the newspaper after this meeting or that meeting, people just think I'm kind of ignorant. So, you know, do your homework before you ask people to spend their time and then really pay attention. I don't know if you've had this experience ever, but like doing an interview where you have to like actually read the transcripts, like, oh, here's where I told that really long story to try to tell them that I'm on the same page as them. They didn't care. (laughs) You know, I'm there to listen. I'm not there to like kibitz with them. I'm there to understand what they're doing. And that's very valuable time, especially in the Zoom generation. I mean, people are online so much. Asking someone to talk with you, that's a big ask. And many people really love it and talk for too long, but many people, it's just like, oh my God, this is one more thing I have to do. It can be a very vulnerable experience also, especially asking people about issues around um, power and privilege. So like, it's really a gift for them to take those risks, to talk with you, to take that time to talk to you. So like, be ready, really show them respect by understanding as much as you can about the policy so that you're not asking like a lot of like, well, who's that? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, like be ready and use that time really well and you'll, you'll get more out of it. And then that person will probably think better of the research process as a result. If you show up and do it well, you know, one of the pieces of advice we got in grad school was leave the field clean for the next person who comes along. 
so certainly with schools, like if you don't comport yourself well, you know, whoever decides, whoever decided to let you in may not ever say yes to anybody again. Mm-hmm. So I just want to thank you, Kate, for talking with us. And thanks for those tuning in. Listeners, if you enjoyed learning more about school choice policies and research from this episode, we, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the NVIVA podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with the research community. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you, Stacy. An honor to talk with you. Good luck with your podcast. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about Invivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.